1, verse 15 through 19. And those of you who grew up in church, uh, this passage is a very famous passage. John 21, verse 15 through 19 And it concerns the failure of Peter, which touches upon all of our failures as well. And the question that we want to answer today is, why do Christians experience temptation? I mean, if God saved us, right, and this is an accusation that we make for ourselves, against ourselves, but it's also an accusation I've heard from non-Christians make against Christians. You know, if you're all holy and if you're godlike and he loves you and he saves you and, he's, and you're not going to hell like me, you know, why do Christians still, why do they seem the same? Why do they struggle with sin still? And sometimes why do Christians seem even morally worse than some of non-Christian people I know? Right? It's a, it's, a, it's a legit question, right? And God's word is not silent about this. And so today we're going to look at it. And let me turn your attention to the words from John chapter 21, verse 15 through 19, as we seek the wisdom and counsel of God. Hear the word of God. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I don't know about you guys, but every time I read this passage, it just like breaks my heart. Um, and the reason is, uh, when Jesus confronts Peter, this is after Jesus died, he rose from the dead, and he's come to the shore, and he sees that the disciples, after being dejected and uh, uh, scared and uh, depressed about their political Messiah dying by the hands of Romans, shamefully and publicly, um, Jesus, resurrected and glorious, now meets his disciples who are now fishing again. Because what are you going to do when you had these dreams of grandeur, of how the king will come and he will uh, begin a new reign and everything will be changed and you will be freed from your oppression and you will become a great nation again. You have these promises and all of a sudden the hero who is supposed to make it happen is crucified and is publicly shamed. What do you do? Well, if you're human, just like the disciples, you would run, right? Now, what's interesting is that I feel like the women at the time who followed Jesus, 
they're not human because they've been run. All the disciples, all the men ran, but the women remained faithful to Christ, which is tremendous, right? Um, the disciples ran, and they fled, and they hid. And they're like, well, what are we going to do now? Our dreams are dashed to pieces. Um, our hopes and plans for a great future is now gone, and it's laid in ashes. What do we do? Let's just go fishing again. Let's just go back to work. That's just how life is. Isn't that typically the attitude and the, and the position that we're in when we have great expectations? And then maybe in our family or in our society or in church, we're disappointed. And then we get, we kind of go into our shells. And we're like, what's the point of all this? If I'm just going to be disappointed, then what's the point? And then you go back to work, and that's all there is. And some of us have given in to the lie that working and securing just a few years of life on this side of eternity is the best thing to live for because of those disenfranchised and disillusioned experiences. And it's hard. I get it. Um, you know, when you, when you get to a certain point in life, you realize that you're not only in the position of getting hurt, but you're also in the position of hurting others. And when you realize that the conversation is much more nuanced and much more difficult to process than just mere simple and uh, superficial categorization, you begin to seek a more complex answer for your more complex questions and problems. Um, you see that it's not always just black and white that there is some middle ground here where it's difficult to evaluate. And you, you're in a position where you'll either just give in and just go to one simple solution that doesn't really answer the whole uh, question and its complexity, or you kind of have to withhold judgment until things get a little clearer. Um, this is where the disciples were, right? They were kind of dejected, and they kind of went back from the whole uh, messianic, you know, a dream of this Jewish king coming to reign and, and free them from Roman oppression and establish a new Jewish nation just like in the good old days, right? During the time of Saul and David and Solomon, right? And so they're dejected, and they're just working. And that's all they have to live for at this point. Um, this is where the resurrected king, with his nail-scarred hands and the scar on his side, he comes to meet. He just manifests himself, the Bible says. He didn't walk to the shore. He didn't catch a ride. He just manifested himself, which means he just appeared Okay, in his body of glory, right, his resurrection body, he just appeared on the shore. And he meets his disciples, and specifically, he engages with Peter. And here, Jesus asks him three questions. That's actually just one question. Do you love me more than these? And it's really interesting, because Peter, if you know the guy, he was a hot-headed fool in some sense. He was much more emotion than rationale. 
He was much more prone to act before he thought. He, he was the guy who wanted to pick up a sword and cut off a soldier's ear to try to start a revolution against the Romans to save his political messiah that he thought that he had to save. He thought the future of the Jewish nation was in his hands and with one sword, right? Whereas Jesus came to establish a new kingdom and a new citizenship uh, by not grabbing a sword, but by allowing his arms to be stretched and his hands to be pierced. This is where Jesus meets Peter. After Peter betrays him, and Peter, in his arrogance, he says to Jesus at the Passover meal, right before Jesus is betrayed by Judas and is now taken away by the servants and the soldiers. Peter says, even though everybody, and he's, all the disciples are with him, it's a really awkward situation if you think about it. All of them are in hearing distance. And Peter says, in his hot-headed foolishness, he says, even though everybody here betrays you, even though everybody here abandons you, I will not. Even though all of these people fall away, I will not. This is what he says. Um, it's recorded uh, in the Gospels, in all of the Gospels. And he has this arrogance and this confidence that is not based upon the work of Christ, but is based upon his own human will and strength. And Jesus says to him very calmly, he says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. <laughs> three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. And if you know Jewish law, after the third mistake and offense, the Jew was freed from any obligation to forgive. Right? According to Jewish law at the time, if, you, if someone offended you three times, right? If they offended you once, twice, you had to forgive them. But the third time, you were free. You didn't have to, because the problem is not you. The problem is him. Right? Three times. Jesus says, you will deny me, you will offend me, you will sin against me three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. And Peter, of course, you know, it's silent. You don't really see what he says. But when Jesus is captured, you see what he does. When Jesus is captured, and he's, now the disciples are all scattered, because now this is getting serious. Their lives are at stake. They're about to lose everything, right? Peter is just trying to hide in the crowd now. He's trying to become a nameless face, right? Um, I remember that, how, how many of you guys have seen Thor, the first one? Okay. Um, there's that one guy, you know, he's, a, he's, he's like this soldier. I forget, I forget who the actor is, but, you know, he has two machine guns. He says, you know, these two Michigans, their names are Des, or is it Des and Troy, right? Or Destroy, right? Or something like that. But <laughs> toward the end of the movie, right, he says he got him from Texas or whatever, I don't know, right? At the end of the movie, when everything, when, when Thor is winning, right, 
he decides to change sides because, if, well, you have to see the movie, right? If you haven't. Um, and what he does, he's put, he puts on this hood and he tries to hide. He tries to kind of blend in with the crowd because he knows he's just trying to survive. He's a survivor, right? And he could take whichever side, right, he can in order to survive. It doesn't really matter to him, really, right? Um, that's kind of like where the disciples are. They failed miserably, right? And Peter, he's trying to hide. He's trying to blend in, right? Um, and then he's confronted three times. Hey, I know you. You're, you're one of Jesus' dis disciples, aren't you? I know you, right? If, if, with the implication that, yeah, if Jesus is suffering, he's a criminal, you should be prosecuted too. You should be, in, you, know, you know, getting whatever Jesus is getting. You were with him, right? You followed him all these years. And so he's like, I don't know, I don't know the man. And then he starts swearing, right? He starts taking an oath. And he's saying, I don't know him. I have nothing to do with this guy, right? And then after the third time, the rooster crows. And the Bible tells us that Peter, because he knew what he did, and he remembered Jesus' words, he just ran and he wept bitterly. Right? Grown man just ran away and wept, right? like a child. Um, this is who Peter is. And when Jesus, in the passage that we read, when Peter is going back to work, and he's like, this is the best thing I have to live for now is fishing. What I know, this is what I know best. This is the only thing that's left for me. My, my Messiah's dead. And there's nothing left but fishing. And so he's there. He's saying, this is how I'm going to live my life. No more big dreams. No more hopes. No more childish um, you know, longings and yearnings. This is what's real. And this is what I'm going to live for. And I'm going to play it safe. Right? That's where Jesus comes. And once John, the beloved disciple, recognizes Jesus, he says, it is the Lord. Because Jesus calls out to them. And he has a fish and some bread prepared for them. And he has a fire going. Right? Sounds wonderful. Sounds like a beach vacation. Right? right? You know what Peter does? He's still hot-headed. Right? He just jumps into the water. Right? Now, Jesus, the reason why, the reason why they, that John recognized Jesus is because when Jesus met them at the shore after his resurrection... He said, hey, did you catch any fish? They're like, no. So why don't you try casting your net on the right side? And then when they did, they caught a large number of fish. And that's when John was like, it is the Lord. And the reason why John recognized Jesus upon that is because when Jesus first met them years ago, right? When Jesus first met them, that's what Jesus told Peter to do and the people who were with him on the boat. He said, did you catch any fish? They were like, no. And then Jesus said, why don't you cast it over there? And Peter's like, we've been here all day, and we've caught nothing. But because you told me so, I'll try it. I'll try it. Why not? Hey, why not? I, caught, I got nothing to lose. I'll try it. They threw it, and now the net is about to break. The, the boat is, like, sinking, and there's so much fish. And you know what Peter's reaction is? He's like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to bank on this so much. That was not his reaction. He fell on the ground, and he says, depart from me. 
He said, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. So the way that Peter interpreted that moment is this was an op- it wasn't an opportunity to be taken advantage of. It was an opportunity to repent in. That was Peter's reaction. And when Jesus, after the resurrection, met the disciples in the same way, right? John is like, we know this man. He's done this before. It is the Lord. It is Jesus Christ. Peter, everybody's trying to haul the fish in. The nets, right? It's full of fish. You know what Peter does? He jumps in the water and he swims to Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, okay? If you have a more type A personality and you're trying to lug this fish into the boat and you're straining yourself and you see one guy just jumping into the water and going to the shore where the food is and where the guy you want to see is, what are you going to say? Hey, that's really passionate of you. No, you're going to say, dude, I can't believe you just did that to us. We're trying to haul this fish in. That's who Peter is. He's a hot-headed guy. He's not, he doesn't think about anything. He just takes action. He doesn't think through it. He's not very rational, right? But this is the guy that Jesus chose, right? And when Peter approaches Jesus, Jesus is there, and it's the early morning. Now, this is important, because when Peter denied Jesus Christ three times, it was at night before the early morning was coming. In the Bible, the, the ideas, the concepts of light and dark have very rich meaning, right? And so in the night, when Peter betrayed Jesus Christ, it was night, there was no hope. It was a low time, it was a dark time. In the early morning, when Jesus met Peter, it's redemptive, there's hope. It's, it's the dawn of a new day. Right? There's hope rising. Right? Not only that, Jesus has a charcoal fire. And if you read the Gospels where Peter goes through the denials, the fire that he goes to, because it was cold out, the fire that he goes to, the scripture specifically says verbatim that he went to a charcoal fire. Jesus is setting the, he's setting up the moment, right? He's, he's reminding Peter, Peter, do you remember this? Do you remember what I told you? There's a charcoal fire going on here. But you know what? It's not night. It's the dawn of a new day. Do you remember this, Peter? So there's mixed feelings going on here, right? And Peter comes up, and Jesus says, <clears throat> The first question, the first time he asks the same question, Simon, son of John. It's very formal, right? You know, when do, when do children hear their full name from their parents when they're in trouble, right? Simon, son of John, right? Do you love me more than these? You know what Jesus is referring to when he says more than these? He's not talking about the fish and the bread. He's not talking about the work and the boat and the nets and the fish that are on the boat. He's talking about the disciples. You know why? Not because Jesus feels Peter somehow spiritually superior than them. Jesus is with the charcoal fire, with dawning of the new day, and with this question, he's saying, Peter, do you remember how you felt morally superior to your fellow friends? When you said, even though everybody falls away, I will not fall away. Do you remember that, Peter? 
do you love me more than these? And at this point, you know, Peter's like, Lord, you know, you know that I love you, right? You know that I love you. And Peter knows Jesus, right? He knows he's the Son of God because he's the first one who confessed it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? And Jesus says, you know, it's not flesh and blood that revealed this to you, right? This is Peter. He knows. You know that I love you. You're God. You're the Son of the living God. You know I love you, God. Why do you ask me? You know, right? <clears throat> and Jesus says, he says it a second time, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you, right? And the third time, it breaks Peter's heart. Because Jesus asked him the third time to show the number of times that Peter denied Jesus Christ. Now it all clicks. Now it just dawns on him what's happening here. It's a teaching moment, right? But it's not a judgmental teaching moment. It's a teaching moment where a parent is so in love with their child, and yet their child has broken their heart. But the parent just loves that child and wants that child to understand and change. Jesus says, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved, verse 17 says, because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter changes his answer a little bit. He says, Lord, you know everything. See, before he said, Lord, you know that I love you. Why are you asking me this? You're the son of the living God. You know this. He says, Peter, do you, Lord, I just told you. I, you know that I love you. You, sh you know my heart. And the third time, Peter's like, oh, I see what's going on here. The charcoal fire. The three questions. Right? And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know who I am. You know that when I thought I was better, you knew I wasn't, right? You knew I would betray you, and yet you still loved me. You know everything. You see, Peter is broken now. There's no mask. There's no front that he's putting to Jesus. He's no longer about, you know, when you, when you become emotional, you just don't think about everything, right? Like I've said. And Peter's just excited. He's like, yes, our Savior's back, our Messiah's back. Maybe he's even forgotten. The scripture's not clear. Just maybe he's even forgotten for a little bit what happened. Right? But Jesus reminds him. And he's grieved. Now, some people say there are different Greek words for love here. Now, some people say, you know, it means this or it means that. It's probably more stylistic and according to John. There's not real meaning in the Greek, depending on which word here you use. Uh, you just kind of have to look at it generally, and that's why I'm taking this approach. It says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus, right after Peter says that, he says, feed my sheep, right? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. Now, you could take this as a literal age thing, when Peter was a child. But you know, even as, as adults, we grow, don't we? And sometimes we don't grow. Emotionally, we can be children, right? Peter grew up a lot. Through that moment when he denied Jesus Christ, he stopped being a child. And he stopped drinking milk, and he became an adult, and he started to eat meat, as Paul says. You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. Peter, you're, in, you're this emotional guy. You, do, you jump into the ocean. You leave your friends behind to take care of all the work that needs to be done. You just, you're just that kind of guy. You do whatever you feel like doing. You're a spontaneous, just on-the-moment kind of guy. But when you are old, Peter, now this, is, this shows the redemptive commitment and love of Jesus Christ for a failure. Okay, Now it's all over, but I want to point this out to you, because now Jesus, he says, this is who you are, or this is who you used to be, but this is who you will be. And if you remember, right before Peter betrayed Jesus Christ and denied him three times, or didn't betray, he denied him three times, Jesus said that, Peter, do you really think that you will not fall away? You before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Jesus made a prophecy about the kind of person that Peter will be just a little bit in the near future. And again, here, Jesus is making another prophecy, but it's completely different. It's completely different. And he says, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ ultimately was foretelling how Peter would be crucified upside down on a cross. Because he thought he was not worthy to die in the same manner that Jesus Christ died. He said, I don't deserve that. This guy, this hot-headed guy who thought he deserved, he felt entitled to everything just because he felt it. Right? He felt he was entitled to leave all the, all the work to his other disciples. He felt entitled to be the first one there. He felt entitled to take the kingdom by force with a sword. He felt entitled to a lot of things. And this guy, at the end of his life, he came to a point when he said, I don't deserve any of this. I don't even deserve to die, to suffer and die like my Savior. What does this teach us? Why does God allow us to fall into temptation? You see, Peter fell into temptation. Why did God allow that? Right? There are three things I want to bring out to you, and I'm going to close. Three words, calling, influence, and exposure. I'm going to explain. Calling, influence, and exposure. The reason why God allows us to be tempted and to fall into temptation even is that he wants to remind us that our place with God does not depend upon your emotional or your rational or your stubborn moral resolve apart from his grace. 
It's not you depending on yourself being a good or strong person that God accepts you. God commits to an eternal relationship with you even though we fail because he has, in his freedom, chosen you. He has called you. And when Jesus was approaching, the, the, man, the approach that Jesus took to the disciples on the shore after he was resurrected and asked Peter these three questions that caused him to reflect back on his terrible failure in life, right? He was reminding them of the moment when he first called them. And that's why he said, cast your net over there. He's saying, do you remember that you were worthy not because there was something special or holy about you or morally strong, it's because I made the choice to call you. And that's the only reason why. Secondly, well, before I go into the second one, at the end of this passage, right, after Jesus meets with Peter, reminds him of his moral failure, of how he denied Jesus Christ, and how Peter's heart was grieved, how it was broken. And he said, Lord, you know everything. There's nothing I can hide from you, right? Not even the stuff I did. You know, things in your past, we try to hide, right? But how are you supposed to hide your future from someone? How can you hide your future? You, you don't even have control over that. You don't even know what it's going to be like, right? And so Peter, when he says, Lord, you know everything, the stuff that I try to control and the stuff that I can't even control, you know it all, right? And Jesus, he's calling him regardless of the fact that he knows what Peter will do, how he will fail. And he says, follow me. You see, at the end of this interaction, this very intimate, redemptive, loving interaction on the beach, you know, Jesus says, when you're old, you're going to die, and you're going to be persecuted, and you're going to go where you don't want to go. And he finishes the conversation, and after saying this, verse 19, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. You see, he's redoing the call that he did early on when he first met Peter. He's saying, you followed me wrong these past years. You know, you were hot-headed, you depended upon yourself, you thought you were morally superior than the rest, but you know better now, don't you, Peter? So follow me now. Follow me the right way. Don't depend upon your moral strength, but depend upon my calling. If I'm gonna call you, Peter, I'm gonna make sure you successfully finish that calling. Calling. The second one is influence. Every time Peter, every time Jesus asks asks Peter, "Do you love me, Peter?" and Peter responds, "Lord, you know that I love you." He gives him a command. He says, "Feed my lambs." Verse fifteen. Verse sixteen. Tend my sheep. Verse seventeen. Feed my sheep. Jesus, Peter. Excuse me. Peter has failed as a leader. Right? He was the wrong kind of leader. Tons of emotion, very little thinking, and a lot of pride, right? 
he says, feed my lambs. Jesus gives him, he reaffirms the calling, and he gives him a position of influence. Not because he hasn't made any mistakes. You see, this is really interesting, isn't it? Isn't it natural for human beings to think that if you want a good leader, you want to make sure they didn't make any mistakes and that they made the right choices in the past. That's why we have resumes and that's why we have, we look at everything, right? Why bosses friend us on Facebook when you get a job, right? Um, Jesus, he tells Peter to be in a position of leadership, not because he's a perfect guy, or not because Jesus doesn't see his flaws, but because he has these flaws. And those flaws will cause Peter to run to Christ and depend upon his power to lead God's people into the future. You see that? Calling, influence, right? And thirdly and lastly, exposure. If you haven't, you know, recognized the pattern in this passage, it emphasizes the omniscience of Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ knows everything. He knows everything about Peter in the past, how Peter would fail him. He knows everything about Peter in the present, how Peter still loves him, right? You know that I love you, he says, right? And he knows everything in the future about Peter, how Peter will die for him. You see, exposure is really important. The fact that Christ is omniscient. You see, when you, when you fall into temptation, God is using you to become older, wiser, stronger, more useful to his purpose. He's not giving up on you when you fall into temptation, right? He is discipling you. He is training you. And he is going to reaffirm that call. If you're in a situation like this, where you feel you have fallen, and it is still night in your life, and you do not see the dawn of a new day coming yet, if you have fallen, and you don't know how you're going to get up spiritually, do not give up on recognizing the Lord's presence wherever you are. Peter and the disciples recognized the Lord's presence while they were just working, and they thought that's all they had in life. Right? That's where they recognized it. There will, be, there will come a time when there is a dawn of a new day when God will call you again. He will call you. He will give you a position of influence despite your flaws. Right? And he will remind you how exposed you really are. You see, with people, we can communicate our strengths and we can hide our weaknesses. But with God, we can't. We can't. And that's exactly how God likes it. That's the kind of leader he wants. Someone who can be broken as Peter. When Jesus 
and the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and reminds you of your weaknesses, that you don't distract yourself from acknowledging it. You don't make excuses for dismissing it or diminishing the intensity of your weakness and your, and your point of failure where you have fallen. But that you can be like Peter and be completely exposed and know you're exposed before the sovereign and omniscient eyes of God and say, Lord, you know everything about me. You know my past, you know my present, and you know my future. That's the kind of people God wants. And God is so amazing that he can use the points in your life that you feel are the darkest and the weakest and the most unattractive. And he can use that and breathe life into you and call you and empower you and keep you humble before his omniscient presence. And that's the kind of people that God makes by his grace. And I hope and pray that that's the kind of God that you would like to serve as you walk your life with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together and for allowing us to see the extent of your redemptive love in the life of Peter. God, how easy it is when we see the failure of others, either in our lives, by hearsay, or on the news, in articles that we read, and videos that we watch. How easy it is to tweet it or to Facebook it first before we bow our knees, our knees in prayer for that person. Lord, convict our hearts. Help us to know that when we see failure or when we experience failure, that Lord, it is a time to fall into your gracious hands. Lord, help us to abandon all hope to try to rise to our feet on our own and to use broken means of power and, and leverage to try to correct the failures of our past. But God, help us to wait on you, to meet with us, to feed us, to strengthen us, to encourage us. So that, Lord, when we look at our failures, we are not overcome with depression or shame, but that we are overcome with a sense of awe for how wondrously you work in our lives and how you make all things work together for good for those who are called according to your purpose. So God, remind us of the calling that we have. And whether we rise or fall, whether we run or crawl, Help our gaze to be fixed upon that calling and upon the one who calls us, upon Christ and him alone, so that, Lord, as we live our lives completely exposed to your sovereign rule, 
that you would somehow, in your magnificent and mysterious will, do some good through us. So God, we humble ourselves before you, and we passionately ask that you use us, not for our own good, God, but for your great glory and for the good of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Please arise with me.